Amen, church. You may be seated. Wow. What an exciting Sunday it has been. Amen. Our God is a good God. Our God is an awesome God. I told my wife one time that, you know, baptisms are a high for a pastor. They really are. It's one of the most exciting things. Praise God for his work. I want to start this morning with a little story about Hudson Taylor. If you don't know who Hudson Taylor was, he was a great missionary to China. He was the founder of the China Inland Mission. And one time, he was scheduled to speak at a large Presbyterian church in Melbourne, Australia. The moderator of the service who introduced Hudson Taylor introduced him in these eloquent and glowing terms. He, he told the large crowd, all that Taylor had accomplished in China, and then he presented him in these words. He said, our illustrious guest. When Hudson Taylor came to the podium, he stood quietly for a moment and then opened his mouth by saying, dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. And that is a beautiful picture of our topic today. We are the servants of an illustrious master, and yet Jesus, the great and awesome creator and sustainer, the illustrious master, came to earth to live the life of a humble servant. We've been looking the past several weeks at Jesus' radical teaching. We've seen him and his radical teaching on discipleship. And he continues that countercultural teaching today, but he goes a step beyond that. Today, Jesus both teaches and shows us what it's meant to be a radical disciple through humble servanthood. Through our study in Mark, we're almost to Jerusalem. I've been telling you for weeks now that our text is taking us to Jerusalem, that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem and the final stage of his ministry, and we're almost there. Our text today is gonna close out that journey, to, or next week, we're gonna hit chapter 11, and the, 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 the whole text is gonna shift from Jesus traveling to Jesus now in Jerusalem, and we're gonna look at his ministry in Jerusalem as we lead up to the cross. So we've got some exciting weeks ahead of us. But today, let's close this out as we look at Jesus both teach and exemplify the life of a humble servant. So if you're ready, say go. go. All right. Join me. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. I'd like to reread verses 32 through 42, 32 through 34. It reads like this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." Here's your first point this morning from our text. We're looking at the Messiah as the humble servant, and the first thing we see is the Messiah's plan as the humble servant. 
the Messiah's plan as the humble servant. Now, Jesus is traveling in a southwestern direction. He's coming from the east of the Jordan. He was in the area of Perea. And then we're told he's going up, up to Jerusalem. Now, in our way of thinking, when we think about traveling up, we're thinking of traveling which direction? North. Jesus isn't heading north. He's headed southeast. Why would we say up? Different culture, different time. There's a couple things actually going on here. Here's a tidbit for you. Whatever direction you traveled from, if you were a Jew back then, whatever direction you traveled from, you always went up to Jerusalem. And there are two reasons for this. One, Jerusalem was on a hill. So you had to go up. But two, to ascend to Jerusalem is to ascend where the temple was. So there is this idea of going up into the presence of God. Now the disciples... They're with Jesus, and there's always a crowd, of course, so there's a crowd that's traveling with him, and we saw this crowd last week. They're all headed up to Jerusalem. They're all following Jesus, yes, but remember, there's another reason that they're there. They're headed to the Passover. It's time to celebrate the Passover, and if you don't know, the Passover, still celebrated today, is a Jewish feast and celebration when they celebrate their deliverance as slaves from Egypt all the way back. In Exodus. And we're told the disciples and the crowds are both amazed and afraid. Does that seem like a contradiction to you? They are amazed and afraid. There's something interesting going on here. There's an energy in the air. There's a lot more going on than we may first think. Jesus, the Messiah, is headed to Jerusalem. In the minds of the people, this is a huge messianic moment. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, at least the 12 do, and probably others in the crowd do as well. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they believe that Jesus is about to initiate the kingdom. They believe that moment that has been promised for hundreds of years is about to happen. Even the 12 believe this, although you might remember Jesus has told them twice before today that he's going to Jerusalem to die. Twice he's told them that, but they haven't been able to process it. They're still thinking in terms of the Messiah coming to Israel to conquer Israel's enemies, to set up the kingdom. That's what the Jews were expecting, a Messiah who would conquer and rule. You might remember that right now in history, the Romans dominated the known world, and that included Israel. And so the Israelites were thinking to themselves, the Messiah is going to return, he's going to defeat Rome, and he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to set up David's kingdom. He would restore the line of David, rule as their king, and that's the atmosphere that's going on with the crowd as they're traveling. So there's amazement. There's amazement because they're thinking the kingdom's about to come. There's excitement in that, but there's also thoughts of, we're about to face off with the Romans. And there's fear in that. And we can understand this mixture of amazement and fear as the whole crowd is moving. That's the atmosphere. That's the energy that's going on right now. And Jesus here in our passage, he takes the 12 aside. We've seen him do this a lot of times. He wants to teach just them. He takes them aside and he reminds them for the third time that he's not going to go conquer, he's going to go die. 
And this pronouncement is a little different than the others because he gives more detail. He tells them he's going to be delivered to the Gentiles, which they would have interpreted as the Romans, and then he's going to be mocked, spit upon, flogged, and executed. Graphic details of what's about to happen. That's the plan. This is the plan. He's been telling them the plan since chapter 8 when Peter declared him to be the Christ. And of course, Jesus always includes this detail as well, as well that he will rise from the dead. But all of it seems to go over their heads. In fact, Mark doesn't even tell us the disciples' response this time. Last time, Mark told us that the disciples were too afraid to say anything. This time, Mark doesn't even tell us how they respond, but we do see a response from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke records the same incident, and he tells us that they did not understand. They didn't understand. He told them for the third time, and they did not understand. So let me remind you, we're looking at the Messiah's plan of humble service. In order for Jesus to do this, it had to be an act of humble service. He wasn't to march up to Jerusalem and take it from the Romans and reestablish the kingdom. That was not the plan. The plan was to humbly submit to the Father's will, suffer, and die. That's the plan. And this reveals two things about Jesus. It reveals his heart of humility and his heart of service. What does this teach us today? This tells us that serving is good, serving is right, but the mere act of serving without the attitude of service is not enough. The attitude behind the act of service is very important. We can serve in pride, believe it or not. We can serve with ulterior motives, but that's not true service. See, our service to the Lord is true service when it's done with an attitude of humility. C.S. Lewis wrote, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's what we tend to think. Humility is like downplaying myself. That's not humility. Humility is not downplaying ourselves, but thinking about ourselves less. Jesus submitted to the Father's plan. He was not consumed with his own ideas, but with those of the Father's. His aim was to bring the Father glory. And Jesus is calling us to that same level of humble service. Not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less as we ourselves give ourselves over to the Father in humble service. To do this, we have to ask ourselves a question. What is my motive when I serve? What is my motive when I serve? Is it to draw attention? Is it to look good? Is it to try to get God happy with me even though that's impossible because he's already happy with me if I'm washed in the blood of Christ? Is that my motive? Or is my motive to bring glory to God? If our motive is anything except bringing glory to God, then it cannot be defined as humble service. 
Now, how do we attain to that motive? How do we get to that pure motive when our hearts are so self-centered, when our hearts are so wicked, when we constantly are thinking about ourselves and how we can improve ourselves and how we can gain a foothold in this world? How are we supposed to attain to that pure motive? We have to go back to that idea I introduced last week, the idea of surrender. We have to go back to the sense of I surrender all before God because there's nothing I can do. He has to do it through me. So let me challenge you. When you sense those selfish motives rising inside, give those to Jesus. Surrender those to the work of the Spirit and let Him change your heart. That brings us to the point when we can genuinely say, your will be done. That's getting on God's plan. That's the attitude of humble service, surrender. We're looking at the Messiah as the humble servant, and we've seen his plan. We've been talking about his plan for weeks, the plan of humble service. Now let's see the Messiah's example of humble service. Point two, the Messiah's example of humble service. Back to our narrative. Again, like I told you, this is the third time Mark has recorded Jesus predicting his suffering, death, and resurrection And after each time that Jesus does that in the book of Mark, the text is followed by an expression of pride or ignorance on the part of the disciples. For example, when Jesus told them the first time, Peter rebuked him. When Jesus told them the second time, all the disciples argued about who was the greatest. So look what happens this time. Jesus just told, reminded them of the plan and verse 35 says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Now, hands raised if this is one of the most audacious things you've ever heard. There's a few of you out there. Okay, yes. It is. Jesus has just divulged the plan for the third time. He's just pointed out that he's going to suffer and die. And the disciples, what they're thinking of is seizing this moment for personal gain. Now, the specific two that, request, uh, that make this request of Jesus are James and John. And they are brothers. They're called the sons of Zebedee. And you may remember that Jesus had nicknamed them sons of thunder, probably because they had a brash, fiery temperament. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, there's an incident recorded where James and John want to call down fire from heaven to consume a Samaritan village because they had refused to receive Jesus. Just spoiler alert, Jesus didn't go for that plan. Now, the right and left-hand sides, let me point that out. The right and left-hand sides of the king were the places of most prominence. The right hand was the most prestigious position, and that was often, not always, but often reserved for the heir to the throne. On the left was seated the next most prominent position, but both positions had immediate access to the king. So what's going on here is that James and John see an opportunity. If we think through the context and we remember, they're still thinking Jesus, Messiah, about to set up the kingdom, Now's the time to grab for power. Now's an opportunity where we can make ourselves as prestigious as possible. Now look what what Jesus says. Jesus said to them in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right and my left hand is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Astonishing that Jesus says, you don't realize what you're asking. And then in verse 40, he clarifies by stating that he doesn't even have the authority to grant that. Does that not astonish you? Jesus is who? God, very good. Jesus is God. And yet, Jesus defers to the Father to assign who will sit at his right and left. That's how submissive Jesus is. He clarifies that, and he speaks in this passage of a cup and baptism. I want to read that verse again. Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Now, Jesus is actually speaking metaphorically here. What he's talking about is not a literal cup like the Holy Grail. He's not talking about the literal act of baptism. He's using these two to represent something. The cup represents suffering. We see this in the Old Testament. Psalm 75, 8 reads, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, on, uh, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This idea of a cup represented suffering at the hands of the Lord. It's a picture of his wrath. Similarly, baptism here is the idea of being immersed in turmoil. In Psalm 42, the author describes his inner turmoil in these words. He says, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and waves have gone over me. By using the metaphors, the cup and baptism, Jesus is asking James and John, can you bear the same suffering and turmoil that I'm going to bear? He just spoke about his suffering and death. He's saying, can you bear that? Now, maybe unexpectedly, James and John say, we are able. What? Do they even know what they're saying? Why do they say that? Well, likely what's going on there is that they believe there's going to be a certain amount of suffering as they take the kingdom back. Sure. I mean, we're talking about war. There's going to be a certain amount of suffering, but we don't care about that. Bring on the battle. We're with you, Jesus. Just promise us, promise us positions of prestige. Clearly, and we can see this being on the other side of the cross, clearly James and John have no idea what the cup and the baptism that Jesus is going to face entails. They have no idea. However, surprisingly, Jesus affirms them. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. What's he saying there? Not that they're going to suffer for the same purposes that he suffers, to forgive others for their sins, but simply that they will suffer for the sake of the gospel. They will drink the cup of suffering as they strive to preach the gospel after Jesus ascends. 
They will be baptized into his turmoil as they too struggle against adversity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is foretelling what's gonna happen to them. And you know what's interesting? We see this play out. James, by the way, is the first to be martyred. Acts chapter 12, after Stephen, after Acts chapter 12. He's the first of the disciples to be martyred. John is the last surviving apostle who ends up exiled on the island of Patmos. They do indeed experience the cup of suffering and the baptism of turmoil, just as Jesus says. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here. And then he finishes with these words, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, you're not gonna fellowship with me by sitting at my right and left hand, but you are gonna fellowship with me by entering into my suffering with me. And again, Jesus says here, it's not he who chooses who sits at his right and left hands, it's the Father. Now a question that I think comes to most of us automatically is, well then, who is gonna sit at Jesus' right and left hands? I think that's a natural question that comes to our minds, but I hate to disappoint you, we're not told. That information is not given to us. But can I point out something from a narrative perspective that is very interesting? We are going to see two people at Jesus' right and left. They're not going to be any of the disciples. They're going to be two thieves. The Messiah does come to Jerusalem. He does not sit on a throne, however. He hangs on a cross. And at his right and left are not two of his closest friends, but thieves who've also been condemned with him. The rest of the disciples, they either catch wind of what James and John did, or they were right there and they heard it all, and they're not happy. Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." So the rest of the disciples are not happy because James and John tried to beat them to the punch. They got to Jesus with this request first. And once again, Jesus, the master teacher, sees an opportunity to teach his disciples. And he calls to them and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Now, the idea of the rulers of the Gentiles lording their authority over the people was a lot more intense than we might experience today. We may experience a micromanaging boss, but if you think about the Roman emperors, you think about the governors, you think about the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, these leaders were harsh. They were domineering, and if you didn't comply, there were grave consequences. And Jesus tells them, that's not how it's going to be among you. You're not going to vie for position or power 
You're not going to backstab or dominate to get ahead. And by the way, when Jesus speaks to the disciples here, he speaks to all of us. The way that the Christian family, the way the church is supposed to behave is not to strive to get ahead through worldly means, but rather to love one another. Our treatment of one another needs to look completely different than the world. Jesus says, and he clarifies here, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus takes them back to that conversation in chapter nine. When they were arguing about who was the greatest, Jesus tells them to be great, you've gotta be a servant. Whoever's first among you must be slave of all, and that word for slave is the word doulos. It's even lower than a servant. Jesus is saying greatness is not achieved by dominance, but by humble commitment and subjection to one another. This is the upside downness of the kingdom of God. The things God values are not pride, dominion, prestige, or power, but servant-slave-mindedness. God values a you-before-me mentality. Now, we get to a point like this as we're reading along, and it's tempting to point fingers at the disciples and think, you know, what a bunch of dunderheads. But in reality... We all struggle with this. We all want something. We all want fame. We all want power. We all want security of position or something. When Jesus is calling us to a life of humble service. And to reach that level of humble service, we have to fight our innate desire for whatever we want. We have to fight against the drive that wants to make life about self. Every single day I fight that. I fight against that making life about me. I don't always win that fight, if I'm gonna be honest. But every day I fight that, and you do too. And I wanna challenge you to keep fighting. Keep fighting that fight to make, against making life about yourself. And you might ask me, how do I do that? How do I fight that? Well, to cinch what Jesus is saying here, he drops a bomb in verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice Jesus stopped speaking there because that was an epic mic drop. Boom. For even the Son of Man And that's a title that we've talked about, by the way. You may remember, it goes all the way back to Daniel chapter seven. The title Son of Man captures both his humanity and his divinity. It's a reference to the Messiah who was predicted to receive dominion and an eternal kingdom. The disciples would have known this reference. He was saying the Son of Man, that one promised dominion, that one who was promised to have a never-ending kingdom, he came not to, to be served, but to serve. This, you could say, is the theme verse for the book of Mark. This captures the title of our series, Divine Servant, because he's the son of man, which means he's God, and he's man, and he's come to serve. And the point Jesus is making is clear. If the son of man has come to serve, to be a servant, then how much more disciples should you? How much more, church, should we?
So how do we do this? By reminding ourselves every day that our Savior, our King, came to serve. That it was His purpose for ser- to serve and it's His purpose for me as well. Let me challenge you to memorize Mark 10.45 for a couple of reasons. Not only because it's the theme verse for the book of Mark, but it can be a theme verse for your life. And let me challenge you. Put yourself in this verse. I can say something like, even Ryan Jackson came not to be served, but to serve. I can say that because that's God's purpose for me. That's why he called me. That's why he put me here, not to be served, but to serve. Put your name in that verse as a reminder of God's plan for you. Why did God bring you here? To serve. And Jesus ends with this phrase, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom means price of release, and it was often used of payment for the release of slaves or captives. What Jesus is saying here is that his death, the death that he just told them about in verses 32 through 34, his death pays the penalty to set his people free. That little word in verse 45, for, literally means in place of. Jesus dies in place of the many. This is what theologians call substitutionary atonement. Since all have sinned, we see that in Romans 3, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, human beings need a substitute or their sins cannot be paid for. Jesus was our substitute who took our penalty on our behalf. He did this for the many. And that word many is meant to stand in contrast to the one One who gave his life, one died for the many. One life is given for the ransom of the many. Now there is Old Testament connotation here. These verses, Mark 10, 43 through 45, recall Isaiah's fourth servant song. There are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. The fourth one is found in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. And verse 12 of Isaiah 53 says this, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is the servant spoken of in Isaiah 53. He was the substitute that took our sin upon himself so that all who call on the name of Jesus might be saved. Now you might be asking, well, who are the many? The many are those who turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. All people sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin results in hell after we die, but... God came in the form of man to suffer and die, taking the penalty on himself. And if you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus, in what he did on the cross as your substitute, you will be saved. You could have a testimony like the baptizees we saw earlier. 
Salvation is merely turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. It's repenting of what you've done and trusting in what he's done. And I urge you, if you've not done that, do it today. Turn to Jesus. Be forgiven of your sin and enter a new life here on earth and a forever life with him when you die. And if you want to know more about that, come catch me after the service. We're looking at the Messiah as the humble servant We've seen his plan as the humble servant, his example as the humble servant. Lastly, we see the Messiah's demonstration of a humble servant, his demonstration of humble service. Verse 46, I'm gonna read the rest of chapter 10. Mark writes, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. It would have been exciting to have seen this. Let's unpack this. Jesus is continuing his journey to Jerusalem. He's almost there. Jericho's about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And he encounters a blind man named Bartimaeus. And by the way, this is Jesus' final miracle that's recorded in Mark. Don't forget the atmosphere. Jesus, the disciples, and the crowd, they're traveling to Jerusalem. The Passover feast is gonna be celebrated soon. There's a feeling of awe and fear as the Messiah gets closer to Jerusalem. Introduce the blind man. His name is Bartimaeus. He's the son of Timaeus. Bar in Hebrew means son of, so literally his name means son of Timaeus. When I was in high school, I wanted to do a search on my last name, Jackson, hoping that there was some great meaning to it. You know what it means? Son of Jack. (laughs) There you go. Now, it's significant that Mark gives us his name for a couple of reasons. One, it was likely that Bartimaeus was known to Mark's readers. We're going to see in a minute that the story strongly suggests that Bartimaeus became a follower of Jesus Christ. But two, Bartimaeus stands in stark contrast to the unnamed rich young ruler. We saw that last week, and I want to unpack that. Bartimaeus sitting by the roadside between Jericho and Jerusalem. And that was strategic. That was a good place. If you were blind, deaf, or lame, it was a good place to be because there was generally a lot of heavy traffic and that offered a lot of opportunities to receive alms from passersby. And a lot of times, the infirmed would have a cloak. It was a cloak used, of course, for their covering, but it was a cloak that they would lay out and passersby could toss them coins, toss them alms as they would walk down this path. So get that picture in your head. 
A huge crowd is moving down this road. Bartimaeus is begging for alms. People are chatting. There's excitement in the air. And at some point, Bartimaeus hears that Jesus of Nazareth is there. Now that distinction, Jesus of Nazareth, would identify Jesus as the healer. See, Jesus was a common name back then. If he had just heard the name Jesus, he wouldn't have thought anything about it. But Jesus of Nazareth, that's the man they've been telling stories about. No doubt every infirmed person at this time knew the name Jesus of Nazareth. And being blind, and it doesn't seem like there's anyone here to help him, there was no way he could have traveled to Galilee during Jesus' Galilean ministry, but now Jesus is here. And how does he respond? When he hears it's Jesus, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus, of course, is well acquainted with his need, and he desperately cries out for Jesus. And in contrast to the rich young ruler, Bartimaeus doesn't address Jesus as good master, but as son of David. And that's significant. Bartimaeus realizes that Jesus is just an, not just another teacher. He's the son of David. Now, that would have instantly connected Jesus to the Messiah. Up to this point in the book of Mark, the only public profession that we see written down of Jesus as Messiah was from Peter way back in chapter 8. And by calling Jesus the son of David, Bartimaeus is affirming Jesus as Messiah too. Son of David also connects Jesus to the line of the kings. See, God promised David's throne would last forever. God promised David, you will have an inheritance on your throne. 2 Samuel 7, 16 reads, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And every Israelite knew that. Bartimaeus has declared Jesus to be the Messiah, to be from the heir of David, the son of David. And this, I would argue, is evidence that Bartimaeus becomes a true believer because he properly identifies Jesus. Now, Mark tells us many rebuked him. They told him to be quiet. And that word rebuke, is the same word we see when Jesus speaks against the demons. It's a harsh word. In our day and age, it would be like saying, shut up. Now, why? Why would they say that? I mean, it's, it's harsh enough to tell someone to shut up. That's harsh. But to do it to a poor blind beggar, that's just flat out mean. Why do they do that? Keep in mind the energy Keep in mind what's going on here. The disciples in the crowd are most likely believe that the kingdom's about to be set up. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to set up the kingdom. And in their minds, he's got no time for a lowly blind beggar. This is the king. He doesn't waste time with lowlifes. But notice that doesn't deter Bartimaeus. He cries out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Does he want to see Jesus? Is there anything stopping him? There's a lesson in that for us, to run and run and persistently run to Jesus. Now, the next three words are great. And Jesus stopped. 
Now, I'm going to give you a clue into the mind of Ryan Jackson, which is a dangerous thing, but I'm going to give you a clue into what I see here. I picture this scene kind of like the scene in Forrest Gump. When Tom Hanks' character, you might remember, he runs across the United States. Remember that scene? And he's attracted a crowd, and as he's running, people continue to follow him because he's, he's running across the United States, and then he gets to a point where he just suddenly stops, and the whole crowd behind him just stops, and everybody's whispering excitedly, something's about to happen, he's going to say something. And then he says something like, I'm done now, I forget what happens. But that's the picture I get in my head here when Jesus stops, everything stops. And Jesus says, call him. By the way, Jesus stopping here shows us that he did not reject the title Son of David. It is appropriate to him. Jesus stops and tells the crowd, call him and they call him and they come to him and they say take heart get up he's calling you which I find a really suspicious change in their disposition they were telling him to shut up now they're telling oh he's calling you oh my bad <laughs> Bartimaeus gets up now look at verse 50 and throwing off his cloak I love that Throwing, I told you, this cloak was likely laid out in front of him where people could pass and toss him coins. So you can imagine there's a collection of coins in this cloak, but he just throws it off. Keep the money. I'm going to Jesus. Again, a sharp contrast to the rich young ruler who could not give up his wealth. These coins were all the blind man had. They were everything. That's probably how he was gonna get his dinner that night, and he just throws it aside to get to Jesus. And he comes. And Jesus, because Jesus always asks questions, Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus knows exactly what he wants. He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Go your way. Now, I find that interesting. Jesus has said similar things to people all along our journey through Mark. Way back in chapter 2, when Jesus healed the paralytic, he said to him, pick up your bed and go home. Be free of this. Go back to your life, free of this malady. Go live. Go. And then he says, your faith has made you well. We've talked about this phrase, but just to refresh your memory, your faith has made you well. Why would Jesus say that? It's not, and hear me on this, it's not faith in and of itself. It's not faith for faith's sake. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, oh, you're somebody who has faith, then you're healed. That's not what he's saying. But that Bartimaeus put his faith in Jesus. It was the object of his faith that Bartimaeus demonstrated faith by coming to Jesus, by shouting to Jesus. That's what led to his healing. It was this act of faith bringing him, bringing him to Jesus that allowed him to be healed. You know, faith, interestingly enough, faith can be in illustrated by a chair. How many of you are sitting in chairs right now? I'm the only one not. Okay. 
Faith can be illustrated by a chair. You know, when you came in this morning and you sat down, show of hands if you looked at your chair to make sure it would hold you. Did you examine the legs? Did you, no, you didn't do that. What did you do? You didn't even think about it. You just sat down. You trusted in that chair to save you. Probably didn't even think about it. That's faith. And when that faith is properly placed in Jesus that we do and obey without even really thinking about it or by taking steps when our faith is weak and asking him to strengthen us, marvelous things happen. Bartimaeus puts his faith in the right person and the story ends this way. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I find it interesting that Jesus gave him the option to go back to his life, to go to a freer life because he was healed, but his sight was not enough. Bartimaeus wanted Jesus. The text tells us he followed Jesus. Now, okay, arguably this might mean that he just kind of followed along with the crowd, but like I told you, I believe that him calling out Jesus as son of David, properly identifying Jesus is a picture of his confession and his faith in the Messiah. I think what we have here is a demonstration of saving faith, again, in stark contrast to the rich young ruler who walked away disheartened. Now, the thing I want to point out, Jesus, in this passage, demonstrates everything that he's been teaching his disciples. He demonstrates humble service. Jesus is on the way to the cross. You could say he's got bigger things on his mind than a lowly beggar, but that beggar is the least of these, the ones that Jesus had been teaching about. And Jesus doesn't just talk about humble service, he lives it. And he leaves behind for us a picture of what that is supposed to look like. Look like. Jesus doesn't let the big things of life stand in the way of helping others. He stops what he's doing. He gives Bartimaeus his attention and he attends to his needs. That is humble service. So my friends, I just have one simple thing here. Who can you humbly serve? Who in your life would be, and I say this in quotes, please understand, who in your life would be considered the least of these? I simply want to leave you with that thought. Who would you consider the least in your life that you have direct contact with and how can you humbly serve them this week, looking to your Savior as the example and the strength that you need? How can you stop, give them attention, and attend to their needs. I want to leave you with that thought and challenge you to think that through. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He presented himself as a servant when he was, as Hudson Taylor called him, the illustrious master. Let's ask ourselves a question. Can we count the times that Jesus served while on earth? Can we comprehend the infinite ways that he serves us right now while sitting at the Father's right hand? Can we comprehend that? The Bible gives us lots of titles for Jesus and many of them tells us exactly how he serves. 
He is the good shepherd. He is the advocate. He is the deliverer. He is the mediator. He is the savior. He is the faithful witness. He is the redeemer. He is the counselor. He is the great and high priest. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Word of God. We could go on. He came to serve, and his greatest moment of service was when his body was stretched out on that cross for you and for me. And the more that you and I focus on that act of service, the more we will rise to the, as the body of Christ to the various opportunities of service that lay before us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Holy One, suffering servant, Alpha and Omega, You came not to be served, but to serve. Your love compelled you to go beyond our comprehension to save us from certain eternal doom, but you didn't stop there. You continue to sustain us every single day. You lived out the way of serving while on earth, so Lord, help us to follow in your footsteps. Guide us to serve as you served to love as you love, to give our all as you gave your all. Help us get beyond ourselves and reach out to those around us who need us to be as you were, servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.